This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 25, 1 through 10. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. This is the word of the Lord. You may uh, have a seat. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, uh, we do rejoice and acknowledge and celebrate that you are the light of the world, uh, that you have come into our dark existence, into a world plagued with sin and brokenness, and you have made a way for us. You have given us life where there was once death. And so we proclaim the name of Jesus, pray that you would give our hearts, our hearts courage and resolve to, to seek you in the midst of uh, this fallen world, and th- that we know that uh, you, you and your kingdom have come and you are ever expanding your kingdom here on earth, and yet we, we still know there are trouble, troubles, affliction, enemies, and our own sin. And we pray that you would help us. Spirit, help us to to see our sin accurately, to be able to confess it to you and walk in repentance and new life. Help us this morning as we consider Psalm 25 and the words of your servant David and how he points us to the cross, that we might leave encouraged, might leave uh, with a a desire uh, even more than we walked in here to follow you all the days of our life. We ask humbly, and only because of the work of Christ, and in his name we say, amen. Well, this is, uh, as we have already said, the second week in Advent, and uh, in our uh, time in the Word, this Advent season, we're looking at this idea of waiting, uh, the theme of waiting, which is, as we've said already, so uh, closely related to what we think about during Advent. And so, uh, really, one of the things I wanted to do by being in uh, the book of Psalms, in the Psalms, Uh, This is the longest book in the entire Bible, and it is a book that helps us uh, that the Lord has uh, truly gifted His people with the ability to read the very words of God and then be able to pray them back to Him. The Psalms are the place to go in Scripture to uh, read about the experience and the emotion from God's people And so we're in Psalm 25 this morning, and we see once again that God has spoken to us through David, like we saw last week in Psalm 27. Uh, Today, we're looking at uh, this idea of obedience while we wait. Last, Last week, we talked about courage in waiting in Psalm 27. Today, we're looking at obedience while we wait. What does it look like for the people of God to wait on Him to return 
And as we wait, how does it look for us to be obedient? We are awaiting people that are called into obedience to the Lord. Hopefully you picked up a, a handout on the way in. Uh, on the back, uh, opposite the announcements, uh, a place for you to take notes if you are so inclined. And the main idea that's written there at the top of the page is going to help uh, guide our time today. And the main idea is God guides and delivers those who wait for him in obedience. God guides and delivers those who wait on him in obedience. Most of Psalm 25, we actually uh, see that David is praying to God. We can immediately be encouraged that David is seeking the Lord amidst all the things that he's going through. But then, uh, like we see so often in the Psalms, we see David not just praying to God, but we see him making declarations about God. We, we see him confess truths about God. And that's what makes the psalm so beautiful is that we have this back and forth with our, our God and then we also are able to proclaim truths to the world around us. Maybe, maybe we're proclaiming truths just to our own hearts and that's what we see here in Psalm 25. I've, I've broken up our time in Psalm 25 this morning into four different sections. You see the four different blanks there on your handout. These are what I would describe in this psalm, four different aspects of what waiting in obedience looks like. If we're going to take this psalm and divide it into four main categories, this, these would be the, the things that I would point to of what it looks like to wait on the Lord in obedience. And so here, here's the first one. This is really what I would see verses one through three speaking of, and that is we trust in him. We trust in God. We see that uh, right off the bat, really, in verse two, that David says, oh my God, in you I trust. Again, if, if the, the big problem last week in Psalm 27 was fear, that David was, was talking mostly about fear and desiring to have courage out of that fear. Uh, it seems like the big theme here as we start Psalm, Psalm 25 is shame. We see that shame is something that seems to be very close to David. And like last week, we don't exactly know who David is talking about here in terms of these, these that are in his life that seek to bring him shame. He's very concerned about enemies exulting over him. It's clear that David is expecting these enemies to try to shame him publicly, that there's some type of, of concern about a public humiliation. One of the things I love about Psalm 25 is that it really, in many ways, captures most accurately our existence in this world. And what I mean by that is that it is a, it is a reminder that life is complex, that it's not just the things that happen to us alone, but it's the way that we respond to the suffering around us. It's the problems that come to us from outside, and then there's the trouble that comes from within. And that trouble that comes from within, we would call sin. That our own sin complicates our suffering. So as we consider that in this psalm, we, we probably want to ask the question, what would be causing David to fear shame in this moment? What, what is it that could be bringing shame 
But his, his enemies, and certainly our enemies, will always try to reframe our situation to bring us harm. No matter what we're walking through in this life, no matter what the travails are, the various hardships and trials that we are walking through, our enemies are always going to try to bring that and to reframe it to bring us harm. What do I mean by this? I think this is one of the reasons why it seems like there are so many unbelievers in this world that love to draw much attention to Christians when they're caught in sin. I don't know if you've observed this uh, in, in the evangelical sphere, that when Christians, oftentimes when high-profile Christians are caught in sin, it seems like an unbelieving world loves to look at that and, and highlight it and point to the fact that either God doesn't exist, if God exists, this wouldn't happen, or if God does exist, he's too impotent. He's, he's not powerful enough to prevent the church from continuing to sin. We, we've all had to at least notice uh, this church uh, uh, also, and the church I came from also, uh, that uh, pastors, when they sin and are uh, disqualified, and that is uh, made known to the public, that that can bring uh, much shame. That there can be a shame in the church that what are people going to say about us? What does this mean for us? Maybe it's not uh, shame to the greater world, but it's the shame within our own circle. Maybe it's even shame with our, our friends or shame with our family. I think David is concerned in this psalm that he's going to be publicly outed for some particular sin and that his faith in God will be seen as a sham. Do you fear that? Do you fear that your own sin or maybe the, the sins of the church in general will, will expose you to the world in some way that the, the people will point to that and say, look, look the God that you're worshiping is, is not able. It's all a sham. Of course, we, we all uh, just shudder to think about the horror of our most unfortunate moments being made known to a wider audience. Things that we have uh, really tried to curate and protect in our lives to not let those things get out. But it's something that we have at least thought about if it's not actually happened to us. That we have this desire uh, to keep our sin under control. That we don't let it get out into the greater uh, world. That we don't let it be known to more people. We, we see this in election years. We're about to get into an election year. Next year, obviously, it's the October surprise. This is what the October surprises are made of. If you don't know what that term is, that's the, uh, the, the term for when in October before an election, that if there's something that one of the candidates has had kind of uh, secret in his life or not as well known, that uh, the other party will often try to bring that stuff to light. They'll unearth some new revelation about the, op the other candidate. We, we saw this in the year 2000. Some of you might remember when uh, we had the October surprise. George W. Bush had a DWI at some point years ago, and that wasn't known at a in a wider way until that point. So that was the October surprise, something shameful in his past brought to light. We had something unfortunate caught on tape from uh, Donald Trump in 2016 that was brought to light, if you remember, uh, right before the election. I, I have to wonder, though, in the culture that we live in today, if, if October 
surprises will even be as effective as it used to be because it seems like we're more and more shameful just as a culture in general. And so will these things even bring the fear of shame? But you get the idea, right? That there's something that is in our private life. It's something that maybe we've dealt with, but we haven't dealt with it in public view that, that we're afraid is going to make light of day. And, and so David is asking God to not let him be put to shame by his enemies. But in, in verse 3, we, we see that once again, David is uh, assured and has some confidence in what God will do. Uh, he sees there in, uh, see there in verse 3 that none who wait for God will be put to shame. None who wait for God shall be put to shame. That's good news. Shame is uh, identity language. Uh, shame is, is something that you often attach uh, to the core of who you say that you are. Uh, shame is very often what you feel like you actually are. Or it's what others have said about you, that you internalize whatever's been said about you and you live that out in a shame, in a shameful way. Shame is attached to the devil himself because it's been the devil's currency since Genesis 3. So how can David say that those of us who wait on God will not be put to shame? I mean, clearly we, we have seen maybe in our own lives, certainly in lives of other, other believers, that there has been these moments, these occasions for public humiliation, for when our sin is exposed and we feel shame. So how can David say that none who wait on the Lord shall be put to shame? Well, we look at the cross. We look at the cross of Christ. We don't have to wear the label of shame because of the cross. Whatever public shame that David is worried about here in Psalm 25 pales in comparison to the scorn and humiliation that Jesus experienced on the cross Jesus was publicly shamed for us. That's what we read in, in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising what? The shame. The joy of reversing the curse of shame for you. And so what does this mean for the people of God? How can we say with David and with confidence that we those who wait on the Lord shall not be put to shame. We say that because Jesus has taken our shame from us. Jesus has removed shame on the cross. Now, those of us who are found in him, our identity is what he says about us. Our identity is what Jesus says about you and me. It's not about what your enemies say. It's not about what even you say in your flesh. It's not the lies that you tell yourself. It's not what the world says about you. It's not what the world says about the church. It's not what Satan says to us so often. Because of the cross, we can, we can claim with all integrity that we shall not be put to shame. And when David says there in verse 3, that those who are wantonly tre uh, treacherous, those are the ones that are going to be put to shame. And we see that ultimately again on the cross. On the cross, we are now able to walk shame-free through life. And it's on the cross 
that the enemies of God, that Satan and his minions are defeated and they are put to shame. Listen to this from Colossians chapter 2 verse, thir- verse 15. It says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has triumphed on the cross over the rulers and authorities of this world. That very, uh, the very acts of Satan themselves now being put out in the open for all to see and to see that it's the devil that has been put to shame. That's what happened on the cross. So waiting in obedience means to trust in him. That we trust in him to deliver us from the shame that seems to lurk so closely in our lives. And so again, I don't know what that is for you. Maybe, maybe there is something that you've been uh, worried that might get out. Maybe there's something that you're walking through that, that if others were to know about it, it might bring great shame. And again, maybe it's not the world at large. Maybe it's not our culture. That's really big. Let's zero in on your own life. Maybe it's those around you. Maybe you're afraid of being exposed to some type of shame even within your own family or with close friends. And what David is saying here, what we want to be reminded of in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work that he did on our behalf on the cross is that you no longer have to walk in shame. That even if those things, those terrible things that are uh, kind of lodged in your heart and mind, those things that have brought uh, you great consternation, the, the regrets in life, the ways that you have interacted in this world that, that you wish you could have a do-over, even if those things come out, if you're in Christ, you don't have to walk in shame. It's not yours to bear. Christ bore it for you on the cross. And it's the enemies of God, it's Satan, it's this world and its authorities that are put to shame as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. So we trust in him. The second thing that I see here is that we follow him. That's kind of the the tone of verses 4 through 7, that we, I'm sorry, 4 through 10, that we follow him. You can see all the different language that David uses here in this realm of following after God. He says, make me know your ways in verse 4. Lead me in your truth and teach me. That's verse 5. Down in verse 8, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. Verse 9. This is a God who leads, who instructs, who teaches. And so the call is to follow him. God is desiring for us to walk in his ways, to go down a path with him. This is part of waiting and obedience is following after God. And who does God lead? Notice notice the person that God leads in Psalm 25. Two key words, sinners and the humble. Sinners and the humble. Verse 7 Remember not the sins of my youth. Remember not the sins of my youth. This is actually the first time in the Psalms that sin is mentioned in the context of the person writing the Psalm. So in this instance, we're talking about David. This is the first time that there is an acknowledgement of personal sin before God. 
God forgives and instructs humble sinners. This is what Psalm 25 is telling us, that that God forgives and instructs and teaches humble sinners. And this is such good news for us this morning, beloved. This is so encouraging that God instructs and guides sinners like you and me, those of us who are desiring to lay down our flesh and to confess our sins and acknowledge our need for forgiveness, that the covenant of God is for sinners like you and me. I really hope that lands on you as as a great encouragement this morning. I don't know, as I've mentioned a few times, how you've come in and what you might be dealing with in your own life, but may, may you be encouraged that no matter what it is, that as we see the depravity in our own heart, as we recognize uh, the, the things that uh, seem to cling so closely that are not holy and that are not of God, that as we recognize those things and want to put them to death, God sees you and instructs you and wants you to walk in his ways. God will guide humble sinners on his path. And what, as we read this part of Psalm 25, what does David appeal to in this? What does David appeal to? He appeals to God's goodness and mercy, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness. We can appeal to the same things. God's goodness and mercy, his love, and his faithfulness. Listen to this passage. This is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, No, we will flee upon our horses, therefore you shall flee away. And, and you said, we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessed are those who wait for him. You see what what Isaiah is saying here is that God offers his steadfast mercy and love and faithfulness to his people. And and in our sin and our stubbornness and the heart that doesn't want anything to do with him, we run away. And we read there that uh, the rest and the safety that is available to us in God, and yet the people of God run away. They flee on horses. And God says, I'll wait for you. I'll wait for you. I'm here. I'm full of mercy and grace. I'm full of steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for that God. And that is the God that we wait for this morning. That's the God not only that we wait for, but certainly that we've seen present in our life. That's the God who's at work in the hearts of his people right now. This God of incredible mercy and grace and faithfulness and love. So if, if that is 
true, and yet as we know, because of the remaining sin that we deal with so often, that our first response to God's invitation to walk in his paths, our first response so often is to flee, is to run away from God. We know this about ourselves. I know this about me. So then look at verse 10 here in Psalm 25. How can David say, and then how can we say, that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast and love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. How can we who are unwilling so often to rest in God, how is it that we who are so often running away from God and fleeing from him, how can we say that we are covenant keepers? How can we say with David that we are going to keep the covenant of God? Well, again, we look to the cross. It's the only place to look. It's the only answer that we have because obviously we are covenant breakers, not covenant keepers apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Again, we look at the cross and that's where we see the the true covenant keeper, the one who kept God's covenant perfectly, perfect obedience, steadfastness. It's where the covenant keeper became identified with the covenant breakers, which are us. He took on our covenant breaking and gave to us his covenant faithfulness. So our, our covenant keeping, our covenant faithfulness is only because of Jesus Christ. We proclaim him and him alone. And that's why God remembers you, but remembers not your sin. Now God remembers you, but he doesn't remember your sin. That's amazing. It's incredible. And it's on the cross where Christ was crucified that God did remember our sins upon his son, his only son. Our sins were laid. Where where God shows us mercy today, where God remembers to be merciful to us, he withheld mercy upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. This is the this is the beautiful great exchange of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the great exchange that we have received Christ's righteousness and faithfulness because God saw fit to put upon Jesus his wrath, to put upon Jesus our sin. And so now in this great exchange that is the gospel, we we can walk on paths of God's faithfulness. We can seek God's mercy and love and faithfulness. And it's all for us because we are hidden in Christ. We're united to Christ. We're hidden in him. And so the paths that God offers us as we follow him are for us. They're for the word-centered, blood-bought, humble covenant keepers. We could say that about ourselves now. We don't say it in pride. We don't say it with a look at us and look how I was able to do this. We can say that we are word-centered, blood-bought, humble covenant keepers because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That That is the God of grace that you and I follow today. That is the God of grace that we obey while we wait. The question this morning is how, how are you doing with that? How, how are you waiting? 
Is this the God? Is this the God that we're talking about? This merciful, faithful, steadfast in love? Is that the God that you're following? Is that the God that you're chasing after? Or is it a a God that you have made up in your own mind? Is this a God that doesn't forgive sin? Is this a God in your mind that you have manufactured that looks upon you and your sin and sees your sin only? And, and, and when you consider, if that's the God that you have constructed in your own life, that that God, of course, would not be a, a loving God to allow you to follow after him. That would be a God to avoid. That would be a God to get on our horse and, and run away, to flee. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. For those who are found in Jesus Christ, he remembers not your sin. David continues actually in this psalm to speak of his great need for God to deal with his sins. And we're going to look at that here in the next several verses. So we've seen David uh, want to trust in God. So we trust in him despite the threat for shame. We follow him because God offers to his people the paths of righteousness. In his ways, we are able to follow him. And now we are able to confess to him. That's the third blank on your handout, confess. Let me read verses 11 through 18 as we continue in Psalm 25. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. You see that the most important thing that, that David asks in this psalm is found right there in verse 11. What is, the, what is the greatest need for David? What is the thing that he is searching for? More than any type of information, more than any type of fact, the thing that David needs more than anything is forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. He confesses there in verse 11 his great guilt. Pardon my guilt for it is great. One of the things we see from David, not only in this psalm, certainly, but it's highlighted here, is that there's no minimizing sin. There's no trying to hide it. There's no trying to pretend it's not there. There's no winking at it. There's no pretending. It's right there out in the open with God. God, forgive me for my guilt is great. And again, what we see in this psalm is whatever, whatever the threats and troubles are, that in this life, it's so often going to be this, this combination of the sufferings that we experience from the outside and the troubles that brew up from within. You can even see that there in verses 17 and 18, that there are troubles. There are troubles that are being enlarged. He's asking to be, be brought out of his distresses. And then he once again references his own sin that he would be forgiven of all of his sins. And again, it's here that we see that our own sin will so often complicate our suffering. And when I say that, I do not mean that all suffering is because of our direct sin. 
I'm not putting blame. If you've been sinned against, if you've been afflicted or abused, I am not saying that it's your, your sin that caused that. But what I am saying is that when we suffer on this side of eternity, because of all the mess that's still lodged in our hearts, our response to our suffering will so often complicate things. And so often our, our sin blinds us to the reality that we find ourselves in. I think David recognizes this very thing here. And that's why he's seeking God's mercy, that he's seeking the forgiveness of God. And he knows, once again, that he could pray these things to God and then, with great confidence, proclaim them as truths to other people. We see that in verse 15, that he knows that God will pluck his feet out of the net. He knows that God will rescue him. He sees that God befriends him. There in verse 14, that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. We see in verse 16 that God will turn to him and be gracious to him. Listen to what David later writes in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, beginning in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Again, I hope that's really good news for us this morning. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He is merciful he has compassion for those who fear him. I go on walks uh, through our neighborhood quite a bit, and uh, there's a street that I go down on my walks, and one of the homes on that street uh, flies the W. Do you know what I mean by that? Some of you might, if, if you're familiar with the Chicago Cubs. I don't know how many Cubs fans we have in here, but uh, Cubs fans will often uh, do what they call flying the W, which is putting a flag, uh, displaying a flag in their window. In this case, this home that I walk by actually puts a physical flag in a holder outside of their home. It's a white flag with a blue W on it. And so the, the idea for Cubs fans is that whenever the Cubs win, you fly the W. So when the Cubs win, you go outside, you put this flag outside your house to display, display proudly the fact that your Cubs won a baseball game. So as I walk through our neighborhood during baseball season, I'll walk by this house, and when I see the white flag with the W on it, I know, oh, the Cubs must have won. And if I walk by this house and the flag is not there, the Cubs lost. This is just what the ongoing rhythm is during baseball season. I think that some of us see God like a Cubs fan. I think some of us see God as a Cubs fan in that when we do well, when we're, when we're crushing it, when we're not walking in sin, when we feel like we're being obedient, that God puts out a fly the W flag. And then when we sin and when we uh, walk in error, when we fall short, he takes that W away. Let me assure you, believer in Christ, according not to what I say, not the words of Jeff Jameson, but according to the word of God, according to his steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, faithfulness that on the cross, those of us who have put our faith in him, 
who fear him have had our sins removed as far as the east is from the west. Our guilt has been pardoned. Because when Jesus was not pardoned but condemned, when Jesus was made not a friend of God but an enemy on the cross, that was for you and me. That was for us. And so he took our punishment for our guilt on the cross. And so on that day, God flew the W and he will never take it down. God flew the W God looks upon you. He sees the win. He sees the win of Jesus. He sees his victory, the victory of the cross. Don't believe the lie that when when you sin, that when you fall short, that God removes his grace from you, that he removes his steadfast love from you. That is a lie from the enemy. We can go to him when we fall short and confess our sins. He is faithful and just to cleanse us. So while we wait, we confess. That's part of obedience in the Lord. That's part of obedience on this side of heaven is that we are a confessing people. We know that we fall short, so we confess our sins to a loving, merciful God. We follow him, we trust in him, and then finally we find refuge in him. Let's read the rest of this psalm beginning in verse 19. Consider how many are my foes. And with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Once again, we see here in the last few verses of Psalm 25 that David's returning to this topic or idea of shame. He he mentioned it at the very beginning and now he is asking once again, let me find refuge in God. Let me find my home in God away from the shame of this world. This is quite a bit backwards to what our world tells us. I don't know if you've paid attention, but the world will say you must find refuge, but you find refuge inside of you because the only dangers in life are out there. And so you find refuge with you. You look inside. You look at your own heart. You discover meaning by looking inward instead of outward. That's what the world says. That's what the world teaches us. But Christianity says Find refuge from outside yourself because the biggest danger is inside of you. We find refuge out. We find refuge in him because we know the dangers, the troubles that lurk so often within our own heart. Friends, the only thing in this life that has the resources to give us what we need, which is rescue from our sin. We need salvation from sin. We need rescue from shame because we know we can't save ourselves. The only thing that has the resources to give us what we need is the gospel. It's all. We can't save ourselves. Only the one who hung lonely and afflicted, wearing both our sin and shame, can be the Messiah. Only only the Messiah could do that. 
Only the one that truly saves and truly rescues, that truly guides and delivers those who wait can do that because he loves us. He loves us and he's a covenant-keeping God. He's kept his promises. How many promises have we seen him keep? And he will, he will keep every single one that he's made to you and me. God guides and delivers those who wait in obedience We've seen obedience to trust in him, to follow him, to confess to him, to find refuge in him. It might be this time of year, especially, that these things might bring uh, the most agony to our life. Uh, This time of year is seemingly so hectic and chaotic at times, and we can at one moment feel great joy in in celebrating this time of year, and we're seeing the wonderful beauties of the gospel through Advent, and then in, in the next moment, we can feel these terrible things. We can be exasperated over our own sin. We can, we can fear this shame that seems to linger so closely. If anything, I hope that you see that you're not alone in that, that even David here in Psalm 25 is experiencing these very things while he waits on the Lord. This whole psalm is, is praying to God. This whole psalm is David asking and petitioning God to help to help, to to show him what the realities are in life and that God saves sinners, that God guides sinners, humble sinners like you and me. So may we take great solace in that this morning. And that it's not just on the individual basis. Almost every single verse in this psalm, David is asking and talking about himself until we get to the very last verse. Did you notice that? Verse 22 Redeem Israel out of all of his troubles. Waiting in obedience to God is a community activity. This is where the church comes in. This is where God's people, this is where you, this is where we look for these things to happen together. That we should be able to work out all of these things by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God together. That together we place our trust in God. That together we follow God that we're on mission together, that we see that happening in our discipleship groups or here on a Sunday morning, that we find that it is our place to confess as a people, that we confess to him as individuals. And then as a church, is what we do every Sunday. We confess to God knowing that he forgives our sins. We find great assurance in that. We find refuge in him as a church Church should be the place to find refuge from shame. I hope that this can be a place where that is happening. I know it is in so many cases that City Church, by God's grace, is a place where you can speak of the things that have plagued you maybe for years. That you could say aloud the sin that brings you the most shame and know that you can find refuge in the love of God through His church that you could look upon another human being, receive the embrace of another, and know that this is the God who has given you refuge with his people. I I hope and pray that that more and more is who who we are, what we're known for here at City Church, a refuge in a dark and dying world. And we do this, of course, while we long for him to return. This is what we're going to continue to practice. This is what every Sunday is. This is in many ways a rehearsal 
of what we're doing every, every, every week, week in and week out until he comes again. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we, we desperately need you. We see our own tendency to flee from you and to walk away when you've invited us in, when you invited us in to find refuge, when you are willing and desiring for us to follow you, when, when our trust in you begins to waver, when the fear of shame begins to creep in, we pray, Spirit, that you would help us. Help us to confess our sins, to walk in newness of life and in repentance. I pray that we, as your people, would, would be a place where we can work this out together. That together we can seek you. That together we know that there is friendship with the Lord for those who fear him. That we know that so often our experience is this uh, chaotic mixture of suffering and our own sin. And so we need help and clarity and wisdom. And we know you give out of abundance. And so we ask that you would yet again come to us in our time of need. And we can ask, like David does here, in confidence because of the cross of Christ. His death and resurrection. It's the gospel that does these things, and it's the gospel that we proclaim this morning. We love you and ask all this in Christ. Amen.